0: From the heart of the Midwest in Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to One More Cold Call, an Indiana University Maurer School of Law alumni podcast. Each week, over a casual cup of coffee, Dean Parrish meets with accomplished alumni from around the world and from all walks of life. Over a season of episodes, we hear from law school alumni who have unique stories to tell about the unfolding of their professional lives and the lessons they've learned along the way.
1: We start off each podcast with a little bit of Indiana University Maurer School of Law trivia and history. Did you know that the law school is the 32nd charter member of the Association of American Law Schools? Founded in 1900, the mission of the association is to uphold and advance excellence in legal education and is the learned society for law school faculty. The Maurer School of Law has long-standing connections. Former Dean Lauren Rubel served on its executive committee, as well as the governing board of ALS, and 2012 served as the association's president. Currently, I have the privilege of serving on the executive committee, too. Many other faculty are deeply involved in the ALS leadership. Now you know. Well, today I get to welcome Colleen Cotter to the podcast. Colleen is a 1990 graduate of law school and has been the executive director of the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland since 2005. She also serves on the board of directors of the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association and the St. Luke's Foundation. She is the president of the United Way of Greater Cleveland Council of Agency Executives and has served in many other leadership positions. Last year, she was named by Cleveland Marshall Law School as one of its 2021 Hall of Fame honorees. She was named to 2017 Crane's Woman of Note. She also received the 2017 Cleveland Bar Association's President's Award and the 2015 Crane's In-House Counsel Award in the nonprofit category. Before joining Cleveland Legal Aid, Colleen worked for Indiana Legal Services and also Pine Tree Legal Assistance in Maine, where she served as a Scadden Fellow. Indeed, Colleen was the first Skadden Fellow to come from the law school. She clerked for the Honorable Cornelia Kennedy of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and during law school, she was on Indiana Law Journal. She founded our chapter of PILF in 1988, was Orator of the Coif, and graduated Magna Cum Laude. Colleen, great to see you, and so good to have you on One More Cod Call.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation.
1: Yeah, it was great for you to make time. Hey, hey, let's just jump right in. I I know you went to law school. You had always planned to be a legal aid attorney, but can you talk a little bit about what brought you to IU Bloomington, what brought you to law school, and uh, a little bit of your experience as to why you wanted to do legal aid work?
2: Yeah, so I... um... As you said, when I I went straight through undergrad to law school and my vision was I would be a legal aid staff attorney my whole career. That's what I wanted to do. And so in applying to law schools, I'm from Indiana, grew up in Mishawaka, Indiana, and went to University of Notre Dame for undergrad. And when I was applying to law schools, I was very focused on where can I go to get me to that path? of being a legal aid lawyer. Um, I actually, it came down to a choice between IU and New York University. And NYU offered me a a really nice scholarship based on the fact that I was gonna do legal aid work. Um, But honestly, IU made a much better offer to me. And um, in the end, I knew that if I could come out of law school without a lot of debt, It would enable me to pursue my dream. And so I thought why would I not go to this great law school where I know I'll get a wonderful education and not have a huge debt burden. So that it really came down to that. So I never regretted my choice to go to IU. I had a wonderful experience there. I love Bloomington. I love the law school, had amazing professors um, and I pursued the career that I wanted. It's a little bit different. I'm not a staff attorney anymore but I'm still in legal aid.
1: You know, it's great you say that. I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm proud. I think, I think right now we're somewhere like on average, maybe a hundred thousand dollars, less average debt levels for our graduates than students coming from NYU. So it's always good to hear that story. And and I think that's a wise decision to sort of, uh, um, but I always love it when we, when I talk to somebody who said, well, I got into NYU, I got into Harvard, but I came to IU that, that warms my soul.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely. People need to be practical in choosing these choosing law schools, Um, yeah, what's the difference, yeah, Yeah. I can't imagine it would have been any better at another law school.
1: Well, that's good to hear, you know, I I always think of classes a little bit like vintages, and, and for some reason, there's some classes where there's just lots of connections, and your class of 1990. Well, you just had amazing classmates, or at least a lot of them have remained deeply engaged in the law school. And um, so I was going to ask you, you know, who do you remember best, and and uh, are there people that you still keep into touch with today?
2: Yeah, it was a great class. I think um, I do stay in touch with some terrific folks, um, and I. So a couple of folks that I'm particularly close to still, uh, Jane Dell and Paul Burtis, who have a practice in Tiffin, Ohio. So, um, which is great because it's not far from Cleveland where I am. And Greg Castanias, who I know is very involved in the law school still, and James Cooper. And James was not in our graduating class because he also was an overachiever and got his PhD at the same time. So he was a little more delayed, but he was in our starting class. And he's at both Greg and James are in D.C. James is at Arnold and Porter and uh, Greg at Jones Day. So all of them uh, I stay in touch with and have great respect. And we've all sort of taken different paths from large firm to running your own firm in a sort of small town in Tiffin to my career in legal aid. So that's cool too, the the diversity of experience that we all came out of law school to pursue.
1: Well, you've mentioned some great people there. James has been just a phenomenal supporter of our students at, at Arnold and along with uh, a number of, of, uh, of other grads. And as you say, uh, I think, Greg, I, I'm not sure his firm realizes he spends more time in Bloomington than he probably does in D.C., but you know he's served on our board of visitors and our alumni board and he teaches classes and uh, both, as you say, just fabulous people. So, uh, um, well, you know, I was looking back at the old, uh, you know, the old uh, uh, oh, uh, student magazines at the time you were in law school. And uh, partly my uh, one of my main mentors, Brian Carth, was the dean here at the time that you were a law student. But I saw this great article that came up a couple of times that you were a founding member of the Public Interest Law Foundation in PILF. And, and it looks like you did that when you were a 1L student. So can you talk a little bit about how that, like, can we go down memory lane and talk a little bit about how you got started? And I've got to say, I saw this photo that that had people hanging up these uh, t-shirts that said, make love, not law journal. And that, <laughs> that was a big fundraiser. I'd love for you to talk about that.
2: Yeah, it's so great that you bring that up because those were great memories. I. The one thing when I um, chose to go to IU law school, the one thing that IU law school did not have was a public interest law organization, student organization. So I was determined to create it uh, when I, so I actually went into law school thinking, this is what I wanna do. And I very quickly connected with three other women who were two L's, um, Jackie Zydek, Nan Nash, and Libby Thompson. And the four of us, just immediately um, became very close and set out to create the Public Interest Law Foundation. What we wanted to do was create a nurturing culture at IU Law for people who wanted to pursue public interest um, so that they had colleagues. Because I I mean, it is hard, I think, or at least it was then. Uh, You go into law school and so much of the pull is do online recruiting, go to the big firms, like that's held out as the standard of achievement. You've done really well in law school if you end up in a big firm in Chicago or DC. Um, and we wanted to create a similar, this is an incredible achievement to pursue a career in public interest. And so we, we set out to, we created the organization, we raised money every year to um, help fund summer um, summer associate positions for our colleagues in public interest law firms. So we sold those t-shirts. I think one year we tie-dyed them. Um, it, so it was a lot of fun, but it also was you know, spreading the word in a positive way that this is a really good, this isn't just like charity work. This is a career to do public interest work. Um, and Dean Bryant Garth was phenomenally supportive of us uh, while we were while I was in law school, I actually was his research assistant my third year in law school and then I think he left the same this, when we graduated in 1990. Um, but once so on going thinking back about PILF, um I do think we made a difference in creating that culture and um, we had a number I had some colleagues who um, pursued public interest law in other ways around the country, which was great and I think, Uh, We helped support that idea. Um, And then a a number of years ago, I was at an American Bar Association convening for pro bono leaders. And I ran into Nan Nash. And Nan and I had exchanged Christmas cards over the years, but I hadn't seen her since law school. She'd moved to Albuquerque um, right after she graduated. And, um, but she became the, she was a judge at that time. And she became the chair of the Access to Justice Commission in New Mexico. And so she, she and I continue to stay in touch because of her. So she pursued a different path, becoming a judge, um, but also contributing to ensuring access to justice for people. And it was great to have our paths cross many, many times um, over the last few years because of our leadership roles in access to justice in different ways. And it all started with pilf and selling those t-shirts of make love not law journal
1: <laughs> yeah I, I like that we may need to steal that, that, that phrase again <laughs> it w- was was singing for summer salaries around when you were here then or did you start that too or was that later
2: that must have been later yeah that must have been later
1: So we, uh, you know, I'll I'll probably have to come back to hit you up for this. We started last year or PILF started for the last year. First time we started to get alumni involved in the singing for summer salaries. And because it was online, we had, uh, are you familiar with, you know, faculty compete not to sing, if that makes sense. And they, uh, so what happens is um, faculty are nominated and then people put money in jars and the person with the most money ends up having to sing at the end of the lunch hour uh, a song. And so what happens is people end up contributing to other faculty in order to get other faculty to sing. And we normally have you know, maybe five or seven faculty that are competing and it's a little unclear whether they want to sing or they don't. And so it right. um, <laughs> But we also got alumni that last year submitted uh, submissions, and we had a competition there too to also raise money. And we played some of those uh, during; uh, they were fabulous. Um, but also to raise money, um, yeah, we're, we're doing a lot these days. I, I, I think I should have talked to you about this earlier, but um, you know, I, I, uh, I redirected just under a million dollar endowment to support public service positions about four years ago. So we're now supporting almost, uh, well, somewhere between 60 and 70 students in fully funded summer jobs, of which a significant number of those are public interest. Not all, uh, about 20 or so are for our Stuart Fellows that are global, That. That are a mix um, uh, in in other countries. I have a goal, uh, I'm now referring it to getting to 100. My my goal is the next three years for us to get to 100 students with fully funded 1L summer positions, of which a significant proportion will be public service or public interest. And and the theory on that is that if I can get 100 students funded, uh, that'll make a tremendous difference, not only on their careers, but also on reducing anxiety and and, uh, making sure they're able to do what they want to do in the first year, uh, working with places like Indiana League services or or uh, clerking for a judge, uh, etc. Uh, but uh,
2: I think that's just fantastic. I think the power of those summers um, can't be understated or overstated. It's both in terms of the networking opportunities that it provides for students and just the practical experience. You know, when I'm looking to hire lawyers um, I'm looking for smart people who are committed to our mission, but I'm also looking for people who have actually had engagement with our client communities. And often it's somebody who who grew up as a in a low income household, and that's fantastic. If you don't have that lived experience, you need to get it through work and volunteer to make sure that you know I don't I, I don't want to hire people who just theoretically want to address issues of poverty and racism. I want to hire people who actually have experience talking to, working with, taking direction from a client who is a person with low income. Um, so that summer opportunity makes all the difference in their ability to access jobs afterwards.
1: And I really share your view. We, we uh, three years ago now, we launched an initiative with the Indiana Col- Supreme Court called the Rural Justice Initiative, and we fully fund eight students to work in rural counties, mostly working on issues of poverty, but also some of the post- uh, uh, uh endemic or uh, sort of issues crisis. but uh, I, I agree with you these days many undergraduates can talk uh, that, you know they've read books about it, but it's very different to talk the talk and actually, Get in the field and and help people, and it makes a big difference when you've had those those experiences. Um, you know, part of that is you know we we've been fortunate in the last uh, last couple of years we we we've been uh, we had another Scadden fellow, but I think you were the first uh, Scadden fellow from the law school. And I was. Uh, yeah, can you talk about that uh, for our listeners? You know, what what is a Scadden fellowship, and and how was that experience?
2: Yeah, so it's a great program. And I was the first from the law school. I was in the, I think, third class of the program. So the Skadden Fellowship is funded by um, the Skadden Law Firm based in New York. They have created a foundation that, and through the foundation, they fund 25 fellows every year. Um, And the idea is that a new graduate, someone who's a 3L or is clerking, applies for a fellowship with a sponsoring organization. So the individual decides, I wanna go for me, I wanted to go to Pine Tree Legal Assistance to work with survivors of domestic violence. And so I applied for the fellowship and because I got it, Skadden then paid for my salary and benefits for two years. Um, And so it was a very new program when I was, um, clerking is when I um, applied for it, very new program obviously very competitive. There's only 25 across the country. Um, My strategy in applying was I wanted to go someplace where I thought it was not likely I would otherwise be able to get a job. And working in rural Maine was very intriguing to me um, in a community where there weren't a lot of resources available and where uh, domestic violence survivors particularly um, didn't have a lot of options. So I applied and I was fortunate enough to um, receive the fellowship, which was tremendous. I think when I got it, I was not only the first person from IU, but the first person from maybe a state university, not on the coasts. It was very coast uh, focused early on, and you know, going back to my choice to go to IU. So there we go. Didn't uh, you know? I got this this award to have that fellowship. So moved to rural Maine, very um, on the coast, beautiful place. Uh, half the county lived um, in poverty, and uh, it's a tough place to live when you don't have much money. Incredibly rewarding experience. I worked with great lawyers. Served great clients, um, and uh, yeah, had to had to leave Maine at the end of my fellowship because the organization didn't have a position to keep me on, unfortunately. But uh, I've still been doing legal aid work ever since. So anyone who's thinking about a fellowship, it's great because you craft your job. Um, you say, I want to work with this community to pursue this these issues. And so it's a great way to take your passion and match it with actual community need and then work for an organization that will really support you in doing that work and in growing. So it's an amazing way to start a public interest career.
1: I was just talking to an alum actually earlier this week about how we might be able to better position more people for SCAD and fellowships. Um, As you say, you know, you may have been the first from a public school. It's continued. I think, I think they're getting better, but um, I think rightfully criticized that, um, you know, Harvard and, and uh, just a couple of schools on the, on the coast are overrepresented in those right. fellowships. And yeah. so we were very pleased when Jessica Beehight, uh received it a few years ago to launch the expungement sort of re-entry program at Indiana Legal Services. And that's now t- taken off and a lot of our students volunteer there and, and uh, w- what a great experience for her. And, and I think uh a, a good pro, a pro bono project for the law school, and something that we hope to continue to deepen the connections with Indiana Legal Services. But, but uh, yeah, those are those are great fellowships for students to keep in mind. You also clerked. Was that after after your um, was that before or after your fellowship?
2: Before my before this the Scadden Fellowship. So right out of law school, I clerked on the Sixth Circuit. I lived in Detroit. That's where my judge was. Went to Cincinnati for uh, weeks of during weeks of oral argument, and that was a fantastic experience. I also highly recommend um, clerkships. I think it's a great way to, to start your legal career.
1: Yeah, we've been pushing that too. What One of the things I find with some of our students and, and uh, at least my experience was you need to apply broadly. And so uh, one of the things is to convince, you know, it seems like you did it right. You know, you, Detroit and Maine, early on your career, if you can do it for family reasons, it, it makes sense to apply. And and uh, maybe a little more broadly than just in Chicago or just in Indianapolis, um, because those experiences can be so valuable.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, so, I, you know, I, when I clerked in Detroit, I didn't take the bar right out of law school because I didn't know where I was going to be. Um, so I took the bar in Maine. And then when I moved back to Indiana after my Skadden Fellowship, I had to take the bar again because I didn't have enough experience to wave in. And then when I moved to Ohio, I had to wave into Ohio. So I've been barred in three states, which is a you know, that's a bummer, but it's totally doable. I don't I think people should feel definitely take advantage of being a new lawyer and and as you say, take advantage of opportunities. I applied when I was applying for clerkships, I was applying on the you know, in Alabama and Mississippi, all over the place. Cause again, there's this bias of the, the Ninth Circuit and the Second Circuit and the DC Circuit and There are court of appeals in every state. And so um, apply broadly. My other um, experience with applying for clerkships was, I was advised, there was a cohort of us who were applying in our second year. And we were all advised to sort of take off um, things, clearly political things, but also other things that suggest a sort of ideology, um, And I think the advice was about a lot of the judges had been appointed by Republican presidents. And so if you have some sort of seemingly liberal leaning things on your resume, you might not get picked up by judges. And so I think my colleagues took that advice and did that on their resumes. I decided not to take that advice because my thought was I wasn't going to be clerking because of politics or even because of ideology, liberal, conservative. I didn't care if I was working for a, a conservative or a liberal judge, but I didn't want to get hired by somebody who didn't know who I was. And I felt like my engagement um, and my leadership roles that I had played in college and law school um, were said something about me. And so I wanted to to clerk for a judge who hired me, not sort of a stripped down me. So I left everything on. And the funny thing is, all the judges who I got interviewed, interviews with had been appointed by democratic presidents and all of my colleagues who took things off, their um, interviews were with judges appointed by Republican presidents. We all got clerkships, but it did make a difference. It was like this little test of um, who, uh, yeah, who was giving interviews. Um, My judge was a conservative judge. He was appointed by a Democratic president, but she was conservative, and I had a wonderful experience working with her. So So I would say that would be my other advice. Be yourself.
1: I think being true to yourself is that's great advice. I, I also think, although there's a lot of politics these days with, with judicial appointments, particularly at the circuit level, I think a lot of judges actually they want the variation of views. They're looking for intelligent people that they can connect well with who are going to push them. And so I, you know, I I think that you know there's always the risk that you're gonna pick people that are sort of similar to your own view. But I, I think a lot of judges actually um, Try to go out of their way to say, look, I want a diversity of viewpoints in my chambers. And what I'm really looking for is thoughtful and intelligent people and that are not dominated by politics, but want to do what's right in that individual case. Now I may be naive and, and overly optimistic, but I think that still applies to many people on the bench.
2: I think that absolutely is true. I think it absolutely is true. And we should be fostering that. You know, there should be good debates in um, You know, in chambers. And we had those debates all the time about cases. And and that was great. That's what made for good opinions.
1: Yeah. Well, I think also that's what makes it for an amazing kind of learning experience and why we encourage people to clerk so much, whether you're in private practice or in public interest or in large firms or small firms, it's just hard to get that time to sort of really have that deep discussion about what's going on. And I think the judges still view their role Um, not only as a process to come up with good decisions, but also as a way to sort of mentor uh, students that are clerking. And I, I think it just makes it just a valuable experience and a way to get insight into what it means to be a lawyer and what it means to be a good lawyer in a way that's hard to get in other contexts.
2: I absolutely agree. The other thing that I learned from that was to be humble because here I was clerking for this judge who had a lot of experience and was brilliant. And she really listened to the clerks. And um, I could change her mind sometimes. Um, she wanted me to edit her work. And so I think it's a great way to start out and you know you've excelled in law school so maybe it's easy to think I really know how to do this. but. I took away from that experience, no matter how experienced I am and how good I am, I need to lean on other people and hear from other people and I will make mistakes. Other people will have better ideas. And so always keeping that in mind and allowing that crucible to be part of your career going forward so that, cause that's where good things come out of.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that's so such fantastic advice. I, you know, I do think sometimes there's a perception that the, uh, you know, the hard hitting sort of overly incredibly confident person who sort of, uh, you know, is able to rattle the cages is a great lawyer. But I've actually found in my career, it's the more thoughtful person, the person who, you know, cares about their colleagues, who are, you know, is open to ideas is the one that ends up serving the clients the best and ends up being the more sophisticated attorney over time. And again, I may be naive on that, but I think your advice is spot on.
2: Well, I think that's right. And actually, I think that one thing that I, I'm not sure I've learned in law school that I think law schools should teach is listening. I think really good listening is critical to client representation, to working well with colleagues and opposing counsel. Um, you know, listening and understanding, getting to the heart at what is it that they want. And if you can really understand what the other person wants, whether they are opposing party, or your own client, you're gonna be much better advocate. So listening key, but you have to be, you have to have humility to be a good listener. And um, I do think that uh, the legal culture doesn't reward humility as much as it should. Um, But lawyers who have humility, cultural humility um, and humility to know they don't have all the answers. And it's okay to say, I don't have all the answers. Um, are much better lawyers and much better people.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I think that's an early lesson for many attorneys as well is that, you know, the win for the client, what makes them most satisfied may not be the filing of the lawsuit. Um, and it, it may well be that there's other ways that they want people to just hear them out. Um, I always remember one of the first uh, pro bono cases I did, uh, we knew we were gonna lose. Um, but the person that I was representing without going into details, just really wanted to be heard, and uh, they mm-hmm. knew they were going to lose, and uh, that was fine. They just wanted to have their day in court to be able to talk to the judge and, and get their side out and realize that they had been wronged in some ways, even though on the overlying case they were going to lose. So we, they, they knew that, and uh, it was interesting. Um, I, I thought they would be disappointed because as predicted, we, we did not win uh, on the small, it was a small, small matter, uh, but the person was happy. They're like, nope, I just needed a judge to know that I'd been mistreated. And and uh, so anyway, I, I very much agree with you on that. I think that's, that, that is good advice. Listening is a hard, uh, is a hard skill to teach. I mm-hmm. think
2: um, it is. It is.
1: Yeah. Well, look, you, you know, you've, you've had lots of experience, uh, you know, not only working with clients yourself, but overseeing uh, young lawyers. You've been the executive director of the Legal Aid Society for, what, almost 17 years? Can you describe those experiences a little and, and sort of uh, what the Legal Aid Society does?
2: Yeah, so Cleveland Legal Aid um, serves five counties in Northeast Ohio, Uh, we have our budget for this year 2022 is almost $17 million we have um, 120 staff members over 70 of the staff are attorneys, Um, and we serve 7000 clients a year growing in that number. and we focus on civil work. So we don't do the public defender work at all. Some There are a few legal aids around the country that do both the criminal defense and the civil side. We only do civil. And we focus on issues of shelter, safety, and economic security, and also ensuring that the justice system and uh, the government system are accountable and accessible. So we our staff is comprised of a diverse group of folks folks right out of law school and attorneys who've been practicing here for 50 years and everything in between. Um, We do individual casework, so representing individuals. um, And we also engage in systemic advocacy, so changing systems. Um, We've grown a lot in the last few years. When I started here in 2005, we um, had 55 staff members. And uh, so we've grown a lot. And we've, also, so, and we've also, I think, changed the way uh, the justice system in Northeast Ohio is operating to be more inclusive, to make sure that, like your client, people are indeed heard. We've created this justice system in America that really is based on both sides have a lawyer. And then we don't ensure that both sides have a lawyer. So it's sort of rigged from the beginning um, and we're working hard to change that to make sure that in fact, um, people really do have access to justice uh, in a meaningful way. And um, we believe that we have created in our culture a lot of barriers to people, uh, barriers based on uh, pay, access to education, racism, and we are all about removing those barriers so that everyone can fully engage in their community. Um, it's incredibly satisfying work.
1: And it's important work. You've got a lot of challenges there. There's a lot. There's a lot to do. If, if you reflect back on on you know sort of the career, are there a couple of projects or cases that you're particularly proud of that you think made the biggest difference or the most impact? And and what were they?
2: Yeah, definitely. So one that we're still. Um, we're still working hard on is Cleveland was the fourth city in the country to establish a right to counsel and evictions. Um, and this was the legislation was passed in October of 2019, and uh, the legislation became effective in July of 2020, coinciding with the beginning of the pandemic. So rolling that out. So. Um, working with City Council to create that legislation and then working to create the implementation of that has been incredible. Um, totally changes the 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 how our courts function. Now every family that lives in poverty in Cleveland that's faced with eviction has a legal aid lawyer, and we have been able to prevent. Uh, evictions in a vast majority of the cases, like ninety percent of the cases that we've handled, we prevent the eviction. Um, it also has meant we've hired a lot more lawyers because now all of a sudden, you know, the the justice gap in America is huge. Uh, more than twenty, more than fewer than twenty percent of people who need a lawyer get a lawyer in this country, and this on the civil side. And so, going from that to every every tenant has a right to a lawyer. That's a a huge stretch. So we've hired a lot of new lawyers and then training them up. And um, the fact that we're there on every single docket changes how the court has been operating. So I'm really excited to see how that plays out over time. I'd love to see it in more municipalities that we work in and um, across the country, it's a national movement. Um, The idea that people should not be deprived of their housing without a lawyer to represent them because often there are defenses, there are habitability issues. Uh, We can get to a lot of issues and unstable housing leads to people moving from school to school, loss of jobs, decreased health, uh, the impact, I don't know if you've read the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond, but he lays it all out that um, eviction is not just a, a symptom of poverty, it's a cause of poverty. So that whole systemic issue, plus the, you know, bringing on new lawyers and getting them trained up has been really satisfying and I think hugely impactful. Another area that I've spent a lot of time on has been the issue of uh, lead poisoning. Um, In Cleveland, the source of lead poisoning is actually paint and Flint, it was water, Uh, but we, the height of the Flint, lead water crisis um, Cleveland had a higher incidence of lead poisoning in children than Flint did uh, mostly due to paint so we worked in coalition with a number of other organizations to craft a lead safe Cleveland ordinance uh, which passed Um, first we filed a lawsuit against the city because sometimes that's what we do at legal aid filed the lawsuit won that Uh, worked on this legislation and now working on implementation to make sure that the city does what it needs to do to make sure that every rental property is lead safe, to make sure that tenants are not um, um, harmed when they report an issue of lead in their um, apartment and change the way uh, that that we treat people in poverty. You know, for us now in Cleveland, it's no different than you can't rent a property if there's no heat, you know, we just don't allow that. And now also you can't rent a property if it has a lead hazard. Uh, so it's transformative.
1: What's, you know, what's striking to me is how long some of these challenges, and, and I, I don't know about lead paint, but my memory is we started focusing on this in the seventies, right? And or at least, at least by the eighties. And And so amazing how long these challenges are still sort of still around and still impacting us. And the other thing that was striking to me is I think we've seen so much in so many areas where um, if you are poor, you can get these cascade effects. So whether it's a thing with healthcare, or whether it's uh, uh, whether it's eviction, or whether it's uh, uh, taxes, um, you know, uh, I think you can see how you get these cascades where you really get into downward spiral. Where good intending people who are hardworking just can't pull themselves out because the complexity of, of of the legal issues, without proper assistance, are just so great, and the cost of getting attorneys can be so significant. If you don't have a system like, like that, it's um, uh, you know I think sometimes people perceive it as either you know bad luck or bad decisions. When sometimes you see these cascades of things that are really outside somebody's control, and I. I I think you described that. Maybe maybe I'm you know more than me.
2: No, I think that's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. And in large part, because people in poverty, one issue, one thing that goes wrong. And, you know, if if I have a, a if I purchased a used car that actually doesn't work and I was, you know, sold a lemon, I put my money into that. I don't have money for another one. And now I can't get to my job. Because this car doesn't work that I put all of my savings into. It's not my fault. I didn't make a bad decision. My options were limited. And now I need access to the legal system to fix it. But if I don't have a lawyer, I can't. So we trap people in these situations that then have these huge effects. And you know, if I buy a bad car, one, it's not going to ruin me. Um, and two, I can, you know, I, I can hire somebody to To represent me in that so when you don't have the funds to purchase the services of lawyers, um, you're trapped. Um, And, and the issue that you brought up about things that have been around for so long you're so right, the lead paint issue. In this country we made it illegal to sell paint that had lead in 1978. We have known since 1978 since before then, um, that it was hazardous to children. And we haven't fixed it. We haven't fixed the issues. And in Cleveland, 90% of the housing stock was built before 1978. So there is lead paint in 90% of the housing stock. And for years and years and years, we as a community said, it's too big. It's going to cost too much money. It's too hard. We can't do it. And the same thing with right to counsel and evictions. We said, it's too big. We can't do that. We need to stop saying that and say, you know what, this is too big not to fix. We can't allow p- kids to continue to be lead poisoned where they have lower IQs, where they have kidney issues, uh, where they end up in the juvenile justice system, not through their fault, but because they were exposed to lead dust when they were two. We gotta fix this. And we have to, instead of thinking this is too big, we have to figure out. How can we make this into a manageable piece that we can actually tackle and then start doing it? And um, both right to council and creating a lead safe community are examples of that. Sometimes we just got to jump in and say, this is too important. We need to figure out a coalition of folks, philanthropy and government and nonprofit and civic leaders and community leaders and craft a solution and just start doing it.
1: Yeah. Well, if anything, if it gets to the stage of litigation at the end where lawyers are involved, it's always going to be more expensive and more complicated. So you're always better doing it on the front end. You know, you've you've had a long career. You've done lots in this area. If if I was a if I was a new law student or a student who's about to graduate and I'm looking for a career uh, in the public interest area, maybe with legal aid or maybe more broadly, What advice do you have? What would you tell a student today as they're sort of thinking about their future? Uh, Do you have any tidbits uh, to leave us with?
2: Um, Yeah, a few. One is, and you mentioned it earlier, being open to uh, different locations. Um, And um, so being willing to move is very helpful. One of the challenges in pursuing a public interest career is that unless you're in one of the really big cities, there aren't a lot of organizations to look to. So willingness to move, at least at the beginning of one's career is, I think very helpful. Getting really practical experience, being able to show, um, I am committed to working with people in, with low income. I am committed to working with diverse communities. Um, being able to show that instead of it being just academic, it's actually real is very important. So you know, engage in, your, in the clinics at the law school, take advantage of summer opportunities, volunteer, even if it isn't legal volunteering, you know, volunteering in a way that you're working in low-income communities um, is really, really helpful. Reflect on issues of racism and how um, your path intersects with that. If you're a white person, thinking about the privilege that you have. If you're a person with means, thinking about the privilege you have and how that impacts how you see the world. Um, being reflective on how um, we all come to our places with biases and perspectives and other people have other perspectives that are very valuable. So being very aware of that I think is um is important, and then um, find mentors, talk to people, learn from them, seek people out, ask them about their careers. People are willing to do that if you reach out to them. Um, And if you can take one nugget from each of those conversations that can help you on your path, you'll be better for it.
1: Yeah, I think those are great, great, that's great advice. You know, one thing I always push, which I think is also true, although I'd be interested if you agree, you know, I always think, you know, you, you might have somebody coming to law school like yourself that's committed, they know their career path, but you might have somebody else who thinks I'm going to go to Wall Street and I'm going to be, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to work in high finance or whatnot. My sense, though, is that volunteering and doing public interest work for people who know they're going into corporate careers is actually equally important because it's one of the few places where you can learn the skills on client empathy. And client interviewing and negotiation in a way that's really meaningful, uh, in a way that you just you just can't get in some of these big firm practices, and so I, I always make the pitch that. Even if you know you have no interest in public interest work, you should be doing public interest work in law school because it's one of the best ways to build your skills, which means, as you say, participate in clinics, participate in the project, do the pro bono uh, volunteer work, get involved in our access to justice program, because that will make you a, a better lawyer. And if, I don't know if I, 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 assume you interact with large firm lawyers, too. They're often deeply involved with the local legal aids and public interest organizations, too, at some point. is that sound about right? or?
2: oh it's absolutely right we have a, We have about three thousand volunteers engaged with the legal aid society of Cleveland. Many of them are at big firms, also government and small firms every it doesn't matter what your practice area is. there is a role for you as a volunteer um we have you know our board is comprised of attorneys and private practice um and both and, and I really think that um they find that volunteer. Um, experience valuable both because you know it's really good practice as a young lawyer sort of getting into the courtroom as of course in a big firm, you don't get into the courtroom as a young lawyer, um, but also it, it keeps you connected with community. I hear from a lot of um, my large firm colleagues that um, you know, they don't actually, their clients aren't people, they're corporations. And so having clients who are people is really satisfying um it's also a really good way to better understand the community and you know lawyers often are leaders not just in their practices but they're on school boards and they're on um chambers of commerce and they're decision makers and influencers in other ways in addition to their direct practice so um doing volunteer work with your local legal aid or other public interest organization is a great way to expand, broaden your horizons so that when you're asked to make decisions that impact your community, you're not just thinking about your corporate clients, but you're thinking about that, that family that's struggling because there was a job loss um, in, in, or there's an illness, and how is it that we're this decision we're making is going to impact that community and that family. Um, So we welcome volunteers. I mean, we're, I'm a big believer in, you know, I have had this incredible opportunity to um, work at the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland and spend my whole career in legal aid um, in Indiana and in Maine. Um, not everybody has that opportunity, but every lawyer has the opportunity to be part of the justice movement. We have this special uh, responsibility as lawyers. You know, We went to law school, we worked hard for it, but we are responsible for ensuring justice in America. So all lawyers should play a role and have a role to play. It's not just those of us who have the opportunity to get paid by an organization to do this. It's everybody's opportunity.
1: Oh, really great advice. Hey, look, I appreciate you coming on one more cult call. I know you're busy. So I really, uh, I'm grateful for you taking the time. I, I hope you know this, but we're just uh, really proud that you're one of ours. You've had an amazing career it, uh highlights, as you say, being the first Scadden fellow and, uh, but then going on and really just doing a lot of good uh, in your community. So thank you for all you do. And, and thank you for being one of ours.
2: Well thank you. I am a proud alum of Indiana University School of Law. I very much appreciate everything that I learned in those 3 years and my continued connections with colleagues. It's um it's a great place to be and I'm so glad to to connect.
1: Well, great. Well thanks for joining us on one more call call.
2: Thank you. Have a great day.
0: And thanks to our listeners for joining us too. Don't forget to follow us on social media at both at Austin Parish and at IU Maurer Law on Twitter and Facebook. And we hope you make plans to come back to Bloomington soon. Each year, over a 1,000 alumni come back to campus, judging moot court Old mock trial, serving as mentors, or helping our students in other ways. We hope you will, too. And when you do, please reach out. Until the next time, this is One More Cold Call, an IUMauer School of Law alumni podcast.